Hey, hello, everyone. My name's Luke. Uh, it's good to be with you. Hey, very soon we're going to be saying hello to the Abingdon campus. It's coming. All right, exciting stuff. And if you can, a few weeks, yeah. For now, we'll just say hello to the usual people at Bel Air and at Edgewood and anyone maybe watching online. Hey, we had a kind of a neat moment last week. We got to join Ben, our lead pastor, kind of on location, some very creative and strong teaching. He's up at the cabin in Minnesota where uh, he goes every summer, kind of a retreat spot, some rest and refresh, vacation. We, we need that, you know. Uh, I'm actually from Minnesota, too. Midwest guy, Iowa, too. Born in Wisconsin. Uh, any, anyone from the Midwest? Anybody? Yeah, it's like, yeah. Who, who cares, right? Who cares? Uh, another nickname for these states, the flyover states, right? You ain't going here. You're going somewhere else. You're fly, you may be connected to Chicago, but you're going somewhere else. Some of you just now are learning this is part of our country right here. <laughs> these, these right? popular opinion would say that this this part of the country is probably off the beaten path for some of us. If you're going somewhere, you're probably going to a more popular, a more familiar place, the tourist spots. You maybe know them, whether it's down in Disney or Ocean City or D.C. or New York. Uh, probably been to some of those kind of places. But we can probably also think, or at least I hope we can think, of uh, some places where we've been that aren't necessarily the popular tourist spots. Uh, we've followed paths that have gone a, a little bit off the well-traveled highways, but it's led us to something that is very much worthwhile. We found uh, something there that has uh, refreshed us, whether it's just peace and quiet or a breathtaking view or seeing a good friend or eating the best barbecue this side of the Mississippi or a new adventure or some kind of refreshment that you'd only find if you're willing to travel off the beaten path. Uh, the Bible is kind of similar. If you have some familiarity with it or you begin to develop um, uh, some familiarity with the Bible, it too has some popular destinations. There are some places that get a lot of attention. For example, if you, even if you've never read the Bible, you've probably heard of John 3.16, right? You've seen it on a sign or on a billboard or heard someone talk to you about it. Um, you know, we've got a list actually of all the books of the Bible. Uh, the Bible is not just one book, but a whole collection of books and sayings and proverbs and poems and covenants that all tell this one overarching story. This is that collection, right? And as you begin navigating around in here, you'll find that the main highway leads to Jesus, right? But you could, you could think of um, Christmas and Easter commemorating some very important moments in Jesus' life. There's other notable spots, and maybe you've heard there, or watched some movies. Movies like Noah tells the story back here that happened in Genesis, or the story of the Exodus. Maybe seen that movie, and it happens right here. Or you've heard of uh, David and Goliath, or Jonah and the whale, or the great fish. We just did a series on Jonah. And there's a lot of attention and a lot of good reason for the attention on some of those popular destinations. There's a lot to be uh, found there. But the invitation today and for the next few weeks is to drift off of these well-worn trails and discover some hidden treasures, uh, some places in the great story that the Bible tells that have much to teach and have much to offer, but they don't get much attention. That's what we're looking for today. Now, that might, uh, that might sound to you like, oh, Dad wants to take us to the Corncob Pipe Museum or something. You know, just this obscure place that's like no fun, right? And, and it might strike you that way, especially if the Bible is just a dusty book on your shelf. Uh, but, you know, you're here. You've come this far. Well, you might as well go ahead and see what we can discover. 
Every place we're going to explore is in the Old Testament, right? It's just this section here. And it, it leads to Jesus and the church in the New Testament. And there's this place in the book of Romans, right down here, where the church leader Paul, he's writing to the church in Rome, and he's trying to um, say, ask them to maintain unity and he's trying to encourage them in their faith. And he says this in Romans chapter 15. He says, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. So that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Everything written down back here is of value to us. It can teach us. It can uh, encourage us as we see those living examples of faith and courage and love and leadership and God coming through time and time again. It will give us hope. For today, the, the gems from the past can enrich us in the present, lifting us, pointing us toward the future with hope and wisdom, with confidence, with the assurance that the God of the story is the God of our story. All of that can be found when you venture off the beaten path. Which leads me uh, back to the Midwest, all right? When you grow up in, in Minnesota, you, uh, you make fun of people from Iowa uh, and, uh, and from South Dakota and the Cheeseheads in Wisconsin. Um, as far as destinations, there's not, there's not a lot. We got the Mall of America there. And if you're a kid there, what, the one reason you might go to South Dakota is to see Mount Rushmore, all right? Maybe you've been to Mount Rushmore. That's like the one thing they got. I mean, they got the Badlands, okay? That's an attraction for Midwesterners, the Badlands in South Dakota, all right? But they got Mount Rushmore, which is actually uh, quite stunning. Uh, these, these incredible sculptures of four presidents who, from, from the designer's perspective, were leaders through the most uh, important uh, parts of our country's history. So uh, let, let me ask you this. If uh, there was going to be a Mount Rushmore kind of carving, however much you know about the Bible, if there was going to be a Mount Rushmore kind of carving of the most important figures from the Bible, okay, biblical heroes, you know, who would be candidates to be on that list? Who you got? John the Baptist? John the Baptist? Moses? Jesus? There you go. Sunday school answer. David? David? Paul, Esther, Peter. Okay, works. This is exciting. All right, well, that's good. Oh, those are good. Those are good names, right? Someone can get working on carving that out and, and creating a sculpture. Uh, someone said Moses, right? Moses would certainly be one of them. We're actually going to be in Moses territory today. Uh, first five books of the Bible are often called the books of Moses because he features so prominently in them. Uh, most of the signs in this territory are pointing to Moses. He's the famous leader of God's people, leads him out of slavery from Egypt. You know, the 10 plagues, the Charlton Heston movie for the old timers, the, the 10 commandments, parting of the Red Sea, all of that is Moses stuff. Okay, looms large in the Old Testament and in the mind of every Israelite growing up and in the consciousness of all the people that Jesus would have been interacting with. He'd have been like a, a George Washington type figure for them, if that's a helpful association. Um, so you, you may have seen the, the movie or you've seen Gods and Kings or the Prince of Egypt or you've read it in the story yourself. You know Moses is a big deal. Okay, But if you only look for the flashing signs uh, for Moses, you're going to miss some events and some people that without whom there would be no Moses. So you ready to go to the Corn Cob Pipe Museum? 
No, it's going to be better than that. Trust me. Okay, you can go to that later. It, it's in the Midwest, of course. Um, but if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus 1, second book of the Bible. And while you're doing that, here's a 30-second introduction that will launch us into the story. The book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, and it picks up the storyline from the previous book, Genesis, which ended with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leading his large family of 70 people down to Egypt. Now, Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, had been elevated to second in command over Egypt, and he had saved his whole family in a famine. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, offered the family to come live there as a safe haven. And so eventually Jacob dies there in Egypt, and Joseph and all his brothers do too. About 400 years pass, and the story of the Exodus begins. So Exodus is the sequel, okay? There was a happy ending to the first part. Joseph saved, Joseph saved all his brothers and all his people there from the famine. He was elevated to like the COO of Egypt. And before Genesis fades to black, Joseph promises that God will one day bring his people back out of Egypt and into their own land. But now, 400 years later... And that family has grown into the nation of Israel. Okay, they, they have uh, followed God's command from back in Genesis to uh, fill the earth, to, to multiply and fill the earth. And that's good for Israel. But, well, take a look at this. But there's this huge problem because the Israelites are enslaved to this king of the Egyptians, a guy called Pharaoh. This guy is really bad news. Yeah, he's horrible. He, he disregards their humanity. He brutally enslaves them. And he even orders that all of the Israelites' sons should be killed by throwing them into the Nile River. He wants to wipe these people out. He's the worst character in the Bible so far. That's a huge problem. And it really cuts like a two-edged sword. I mean, number one, the, the tables have turned. Things have shifted, a monumental change. It's going to affect every single Israelite. With the installment of a new king, the rules to the game have become totally different because the Israelites' position relative to power has now totally reversed. When Genesis ended, their guy was in the White House. They were esteemed and favored because it was someone from their tribe who led everyone and saved everyone from the famine. But this new regime doesn't care about any of that. King says to his people, there's too many, too, look at all these Israelites, look at all those people running around here. We got to do something about this. Becoming too powerful and more than we are. If we don't outsmart them, their families are going to grow larger. They're going to fight with our enemies. They'll leave us high and dry. And so as the video said, he shackles them in slavery. Israelites go from the top to the bottom. Whereas once the Hebrew people felt secure, now they're in danger. What they once controlled is now out of their hands. What was easy is now hard. Friends are now enemies. Privileges are revoked. Nothing is guaranteed. And at some level, we can all relate to the experience of change, right? Whether you have endured it as a refugee or a divorcee or an employee with, with a new boss or without a job. Change happens People get reassigned, the branch shuts down, the school closes, soldiers get deployed or relocated, loved ones die, change happens, and it's beyond our control, and we're, we're forced to adjust to a totally new environment, a new reality with new rules. How do you respond in situations like that? Change brings challenges. I think that's probably always true, but especially here. I mean, especially here, the second thing we've got to note is just how drastic 
this change is. I mean, the intensity of the experience for the Israelite people, it's off the charts. They, they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They ended up building these cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. And that just made the Egyptians hate them even more. It worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar with all kind of work in the fields. And all that harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. All this designed by the worst character in the Bible so far, as, the Bible, as that video said. This character has unfortunately reappeared on too many stages in too many places throughout the centuries, and we recognize him in Nazi Germany, in Rwanda, in South Africa, in our own country where we know that the history of oppression is not yet history. I have two adopted boys growing up in my house who, because of the color of their skin, are linked to one side of that history, and I, because of the color of my skin, am linked to the other side of that history. And all of us have our own experience with, experiences with the oppressive forces that we've been witness to or seeing the evils that result when those forces are unleashed on the world, unleashed on people. Well, this is the scene. This is what God's people are experiencing in its fullest intensity in Exodus chapter 1. And they're on the side of the oppressed. The script has flipped. The heat has been turned up. And we're left to wonder who's going to do something about it. We need a hero. I mean, come on, only something heroic will do. Now, not the old college try, not some spontaneous do-gooder, not even 110%. We need a hero. But we can't fetch Moses. He hasn't even been thought of. Enter Shifra and Pua. Shifra and Pua, those are women, if you didn't know by their names. In fact, expected parents, you may want to write those down for girl baby names, right? <laughs> and they're coming. Right? <laughs> Actually, these are the women you'd call if you were an Israelite and you were expecting a baby. Uh, they're midwives. They're midwives. And Exodus says they received the quite difficult call uh, not from a mother, but from this worst character in the Bible so far. King Pharaoh is still trying to figure out what to do with all of these Hebrew people that are reproducing like rabbits. The king said to the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth and you're on the delivery stool, if you see that that baby is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, you let her live. Job just got a little bit harder. For Shifra and Pua, I mean, a little more at stake. You think you got the boss breathing down your neck at work? How about a murderous king? And to zoom out just a little bit more, I mean, we're talking about the fate of a nation is at stake. Humanity is at stake. The accomplishment of God's purpose to bless the world through this nation is now hanging in the balance. Opposition of the cruelest kind seeking to stamp it out. Moses is nowhere to be found. In fact, God ha hasn't shown up yet in the story, has not yet communicated a plan, hasn't entered the picture. The king of Egypt seems to be squarely in the driver's seat calling the shots. However, however, the midwives feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. 
They let the boys live. Isn't that a great verse? A great faith and courage, not through the wielding of weapons on the battlefield, but through the steady commitment to do what God has assigned, no matter the circumstances. In their case, delivering babies. I don't really know what that's like, but this is what I would do, right? (laughs) That's all they're doing. D- delivering baby, D- their job. They're not trying to be heroes. They're not trying to go down in history. They don't know that their story is going to be written down and bound up in the Bible and carry on for centuries. They'd have no reason to believe that. We're not, we're not told that they had any special call from God. God hasn't even taken action yet in Exodus. No news from upstairs on who or what or when or how in the world God is going to get us out of this mess. But yet, that doesn't stop these women from executing God's plan for deliverance before he's even called to play in. It doesn't look like deliverance. It's just delivering babies. It's not plagues and the parting of seas that excite the screenwriters. Like Rosa Parks, it didn't look like deliverance. It was just riding the bus. And for Shifra and Pua, it was just delivering babies. That's how they prove their faith in the nitty-gritty, day-to-day, doing the right thing. No, the playing field's not level. No, conditions aren't conducive to obeying God. There's, there's so little that's actually in their control. It's unfair that life's not unfolding according to their terms. They didn't ask for this. They have no authority, no respect, no status. Every excuse is available to them. They're just women trying to survive in a man's world, but yet they know they ain't working for the man. They don't fear the man. They fear God. They trust God. They believe in God. Not, not in like a mental acknowledgement, oh sure, I believe in God. Not in a tit-for-tat kind of way, I'll do more for God if he does more for me. Not in a, I'll call on him if I need him kind of a way, but through the obedience that stays true in the midst of uncertainty, through courage to do what is right no matter the cost. Is that what your faith is like? Now, now you, might, you might say, like, you know, I'm just here, I'm not really a person of faith. And I understand, and you're welcome here. As you're considering what it means to trust God, you're getting a very clear picture of what that looks like. From a story written in the past in order to teach us so that through the encouragement it provides, we might have hope. Hope that that such faith is actually worth it. Hope that these kinds of risks and this kind of courage actually pays off. Hope that taking steps in the direction of a God you cannot see, defying the demands of people who would use you as a pawn in their game, would somehow bring freedom. Freedom from bondage, from fear, from sin, from oppression, from death. Hope that God would enter the story, our story, and bring his life and blessing and power and presence to sustain us in our faith. Will he? And the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, what are you doing? 
Why? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered, Pharaoh, Hebrew women, they're not like the Egyptian women. They're, 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 they're vigorous. This just happens so quick before we can even get there. They're giving birth. This is like that moment if, where the characters would look at the camera and wink, right? So God was kind to the midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. A fitting reward for these women who literally kept the families of Israel alive. And here ends the story of Shifra and Puah. Oh, the story continues on to more dramatic and popular destinations like the Exodus. But that's all we know about these midwives who outfoxed the most powerful man in the land. Can we look back at what's happened here? Uh, if you still feel like you're at the Corncob Pipe Museum, all right, we're almost done, all right? Uh, this is going to be good. Now, until the end, until those last few verses, God is really a, a silent actor in the story. He's not really visible on stage. You ever feel like that in your own life? Uh, but you, you see this, this principle at work. There's a few places in the Bible where it says this, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This, this carries through uh, the whole story, and it shows up in these very ironic ways. Okay, look, number one, what's, what's Pharaoh afraid of early on? Right? These people are going to uh, keep growing, and he thinks, oh no, they're going to rise up and destroy me. So to prevent this, he oppresses them, and that oppression leads to them rising up and destroying him. Well, the part of the story that we've only alluded to, the Exodus, right? Uh, talk about your all-time backfires. Number two, Pharaoh increases their labor, which only increases their labor. Forced labor apparently forces labor. Now, this, this defies logic. I mean, as any marriage counselor would tell you, what's, why aren't married couples being intimate with one another? It's just there's so much going on. They're overworked. It's fatigue. That's what, that's what happened. Pharaoh knows this. He's got a therapist on his cabinet. That's the one who suggested the whole slave labor idea. I'm kidding. But, but really, all, all of that work, it doesn't matter. God's people, no, they will not be held back in this area. Married people, there you go. Okay, even though you're overworked, schedule some time. There's a takeaway for today. <laughs> Number three, Pharaoh, uh, well, he discounts the impact that females have on the playing out of history, but it's the females who play Pharaoh for a fool. You know, what's he say? Kill the boys. Oh, you can let the girls live. I don't care about that. He actually says this twice. If you keep reading, he modifies his policy and says, uh, let the girls live, but throw the boys into the Nile River. Uh, into the Nile River. It's the girls. The girls are the one undoing his plan, right? When, when I said that part about he winked at the camera, here's what's in that. Okay, the midwives told Pharaoh, the Hebrew women, they're too vigorous. When they give childbirth, they do it before we can get there. So on one hand, that's a nod to the, just the strength of the Hebrew women. But on the other hand, they're, they're saying... In other words, they're, they're like animals the way they do it. 
And they're playing right into Pharaoh's prejudices. I mean, he's already dehumanizing these people. He already believes them to be like animals, those people. They're, they're subhuman. And so when they tell him this story, it plays right into his prejudice. And he's saying, that's yeah, probably true, those filthy animals. They played him. And then you keep reading. The next chapter is when Moses shows up through crafty women. Throw the boys in the Nile? Okay. Moses' mother puts him in a basket in the Nile. Sister watches. Pharaoh's own daughter finds Moses, adopts him, brings him into Pharaoh's household, and raises him up to be the deliverer of the Hebrew people that Pharaoh is trying to extinguish. Isn't that awesome? It's very satisfying literature, (laughs) But it's so much more than just good literature. It was written down to teach us so that through the examples of endurance and the encouragement that they provide, we might have hope. We need hope. I mean, from this vantage point, looking back at the story, I mean, Pharaoh's defeated. His folly is exposed. But when you're in the middle, and you might be in the middle today, you're slogging it through, working 14-hour days, making bricks in the heat under the whip of a slave master, and you finally straighten up and look around. I mean, how is it that you're going to be able to see that God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble? What about your environment would suggest to you that that's true? When the bad guys are winning, where will we find hope? When life's unfair, when the rug gets pulled out from under you, when you're stabbed in the back, when darkness creeps in, when the streets are on fire, when the poor are trampled, where would you find any evidence that God is advancing against those who mock him and fighting on the side of those suffering in obedience? We need witnesses like Shifra and Pua. People who've been through it and come out the other side to testify to God's deliverance. You may have never heard of their story before. But it has been preserved throughout history because they bear witness that when you fear God, when you trust God, and you make a commitment to obey God in the face of uncertainty and evil and difficulty and even death, God will sustain you in that commitment. He will encourage your faith. He will move in to bless. Even though the wrong people are calling the shots. Even when God doesn't seem to be a visible, tangible, vocal actor on the stage, he is bringing about his good purposes through people who will cooperate with him and do whatever faith demands in the moment. Deliver babies. Teach your children. Resist temptation. Tell the truth. Change diapers, care for the dying, support the weak, elevate the poor, forgive your neighbor, fix cars, clean teeth, serve food, do whatever you do day in and day out as though working for God and not for man. And God will sustain you in that commitment.
I told you I have two adopted boys. Uh, they're from Uganda. I've, uh, yeah, sometimes we dress them. <laughs> it's summer. It's summer. Uh, I've talked before from the stage about our, our experience traveling over there to get them. It was, it was very difficult. Uh, three and a half month process really took its toll on us. Uh, we were in control of very little. It seemed like all, all the people calling the shots, every, everyone who had some kind of power over the process, uh, seemed to be working against us. Right? The environment wasn't shaped for ease or efficiency. It was more like an obstacle course, frankly. Nothing happened on our terms. The playing field was unfair and unfamiliar, and we were just plain uncomfortable. Uh, now, I was, wasn't making mud bricks in the heat all day, and, and really, there's a ton of adopted families who have a way harder time than, than we do, but... Our experience was enough to make me angry and whiny and afraid for most of the time. It rarely looked like deliverance. God did not appear to be opposing the proud, to be advancing against the opposition and showing favor to the feeble ones trying to get his work done down here. And for almost all of those 105 days, the things that obedience demanded were change diapers, make food, get it in their mouth, tickle their bellies, clean them up, support your wife. With, with no guarantee that doing all of that would act, get us anywhere closer to where we're trying to go. It didn't look like deliverance. And, and I didn't look much like a a faithful witness. I didn't have the courage of Shifran Pua. The only thing I did right was not give up. And God sustained me in that commitment. Hallelujah. There were, there were key moments, I remember. It, it was the scriptures, written examples from the past of faith and endurance that encouraged me and gave me hope. When it didn't look like he would deliver, I found hope through the testimony of faithful witnesses. You know, the witness of these women is, it's tucked away, it's off the beaten path, you're not gonna find it unless you go hunting for it. But nevertheless, it does point to the main attraction. In, uh, in John chapter 13, Jesus is gathered with his followers. It's right before he would be arrested and taken away to be killed. Jesus senses what's happening. Uh, his followers don't. And it didn't look like deliverance when Jesus took a towel and knelt down to wash his disciples' feet and show them what love was. And show them what was the essence of his identity, of his mission. And it didn't look like deliverance when Jesus had everything stripped from him and taken against, against his will. He was killed as a criminal by the bad guys calling the shots. God was not opposing the proud. They were running roughshod over his humble servant, his own son. But God sustained Jesus in his commitment to obedience 
and his commitment to sacrificial love. And after death had ordered that Jesus be tucked away in the tomb, God let the boy live. And his deliverance looked like delivery, new birth, new life, bursting forth to bear witness to God's deliverance so that we might have hope. Let's claim that hope today, wherever we're at. If you feel like an outsider to God's story, may God give birth to a desire in you to reach out to and trust him with your story. You know, maybe you've wandered off the beaten path. Maybe you've feared men instead of God, or you've valued temporary things more than eternal things, or you've been enslaved by your own desired and you need desires and you, you need to be delivered. In Christ, there is deliverance and new life. If, uh, through some self-reflection, you have found yourself on the side of the oppressor, if pride and prejudice has taken root and has warped your perspective, may the truth convict you that God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble, repent and humble yourself before God. Be delivered from what is ultimately a destructive path, as Pharaoh is a witness. Or if you are on the side of the oppressed and you are being beaten down, you're, you're stuck in the middle, slugging it out, grieving, waiting, trying. May God give you the courage to walk in obedience even though the road is hard. Nothing about your situation might look like deliverance. God might be a silent actor, and dramatics act, or dramatic acts of redemption might be a long way off in the distance. But when you fear God and you commit your way to him, he will sustain you in that commitment. He will encourage your faith. He will move in to bless and then you, like Shifra and Pua, will be a witness. Let's pray. God, thank you for the truth uh, of your word, uh, for the ways that we get to encounter it, and stories that are well told. Not just that they're good literature, but they are uh, good for the soul. They, they bring hope, they bring teaching, they bring encouragement. I pray that uh, where, whatever we need from you today, that you would deliver on that, that you would deliver us from uh, the sin and the things that would oppress us and beat us down. Uh, God, speak your truth to us. Let your story continue to uh, fill and fuel our imagination that we might know what faith is, that we might be a people shaped by your story, uh, that, that your story would shape our story, and that our faith would be encouraged and we might be able to live as your witnesses. Thank you again for the truth of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.